Hi, this is your host Nathan Shaw. I'm away in Japan for two weeks, and so I've got a series of episodes as a special series now. It's going to be this week, next week, and the week after. So there'll be the 17th, the 23rd, and the 30th of August as a special series on a particular subject that I'm quite interested in, and that is the global financial crisis and its effect on Europe. This week, I'll be talking about the global financial crisis,、uh, primarily with how it transferred its way from America to Europe and its effects in Europe, and what was going on in the banking sectors and the national economies that caused this to happen, and how the introduction of the euro had a very unique、uh, impact in how the European system was hurt, particularly hard by the global financial crisis. The second episode next week will be on the bailouts、uh, of various national governments and how it was actually a bailout of German and French banks. Via those national economies, and also the talk of the idea of austerity, the idea of cutting back on spending within a country in an effort to try and save money to pay off this debt of these bailouts, and this idea of sovereign debt out of control, and what the actual data really tells us about that issue. In the third episode, we'll talk about the political effects of this crisis and. How internationally and domestically the politics of Europe have changed significantly with the rise of nationalism and, and populist parties. Hello and welcome to the Envoy podcast for the seventeenth of August. I'm your host Nathan Shaw. So jumping right in, you may have some understanding of the global financial crisis,、uh, be hearing things in the news and explanations given. The basic underpinnings of the global financial crisis is that. Excessive lending by banks created a situation where they were far too vulnerable to this running out of money or insufficient cash flows at any time, which would mean they wouldn't be able to、uh, cover their debt, and then this is going to cause a cascading effect where they would just run out of money, and that the bank would collapse and bring down significant parts of the economy with it. Now, the global financial crisis started and was kicked off in the U.S., but it spread further abroad and particularly into Europe. However, the Americans. Provided liquidity to their banks, got the process restarting up again, and it was able to come out relatively unscathed compared to what happened in Europe. Initially, in Europe, there was a view that the global financial crisis was an Anglo-Sphere problem, and that it was the profligate Americans who were causing this issue, and it wasn't a problem for Europe. However, actually, in Europe, it was actually significantly worse because the overlending that was occurring in America was actually far more concentrated in in Europe and interlending between countries there than the effects in America has. And there's a few reasons behind that, which we'll go into. The first is that, so the first reason is that in America, the banks, as a proportion of the overall kind of investment profile in the country, if you're going to put money into the government bonds or you're going to put money into the stock market or into the bank. There's different areas you can go, and the banks made up a relatively small proportion of that overall profile. It was a still a significant amount,、um, and you know, the the overall value of the bank's balance sheets might be a fair proportion of the the American economy. But in Europe, however, there is far less proportion of the money going to the stock market. It's far more likely to be in the banking sectors, and these are international banks: National Bank in France or National Bank in Germany, and that these banks. Were so large with their overlending that not only were there a larger proportion of the investment, they're also in some cases having balance sheets that were equivalent to the entire GDP of the country, and this leads to this notion you've probably heard of, which is too big to fail. 
And this is exactly what it means. It means that the, the banks were just so large that they were so important to the economy that they couldn't possibly be allowed to fail. Now, a libertarian might say that, you know, let them fail. It's the normal part of the system. If you fail in the, the corporate sphere, then you should fall away and somebody else who's better than you will come in after. But the effects of Deutsche Bank collapsing is not the same as a local kebab shop closing down. There is a degree of impact that is so much larger that it becomes untenable to allow it to fail. And because it means anyone who has money inside the bank will lose their money. People who have investments in the, the bank will lose their money. People who are indebted to the company might see their houses seized and sold to try and provide some kind of restoration to the creditors who originally provided the bank with credit. And so you have this problem where it reaches down to the individual where you walk up to the ATM and you just can't get money out of the bank. And how are you going to pay to feed your family? It's wide ranging effects that would be too devastating for the economy to contemplate. And so you have to intervene if you don't want a deep and unabiding recession uh, and really a depression that will occur if you don't intervene. However, the libertarians have a point. If you don't intervene and you let it fail, then people who have caused the decisions will lose their jobs, they will suffer for it, and so there will be some impact which will dissuade others from doing this in the future. But we know that the impacts will go beyond them and it's going to be too major, so we can't do that. What's the alternative? Well, there's an old saying from previous bailouts in the past, and the saying goes, fail, bail, send to jail. The idea is that the bank has now failed. We can't let it fail. We're going to bail it out. We just have to do it to protect the overall economy. But the people who are responsible need to be sent to jail to dissuade others from pursuing the same course of action. And so that way you don't set up a moral hazard where people know that I can do whatever I want. I'm not going to go to jail. I can make lots of money and the, the government will bail me out in the end. And the government in the end represents the people. That means the people are bailing me out. However, we've seen that so many people were involved and there were so many people that were culpable that you'd have to jail a significant portion of the financial sector. And even if you didn't have to, and there was a smaller proportion you went after, you would be seen as undermining confidence in that if you started sending people to jail, no one would take any risks. The legal dissuasion would mean that despite bailing it out, no one in the firm would be willing to take any risks whatsoever and the entire country would fall, come to a halt anyway because investment and lending would stop anyway. So that's where we ended up today. The banks were bailed out. No one went to jail. However, another option was chosen. There is an attempt to regulate the banks more heavily. And so now banks have all sorts of divisions to try and keep an eye on people and what kind of things they're investing in. And governments will demand that you have a certain degree of capital available or so you maintain liquidity and that if there is a problem, you can cover it and that you're not so leveraged, not so at risk of suddenly going out of business. And so this is an important point, particularly, and we'll reference it in next week's discussion about the politics of the Eurozone crisis. The banks and the private sector ends up being bailed out by the government or the public sector. But first, we're going to talk about something peculiar about the European Union and the reason why their banks were so overinflated in terms of their, their size and the size of their balance sheets being you know, the same size of their entire national economy of Germany or France, and the reason why they were so exposed at the time of the crisis. And it's primarily related to the idea of the euro and being in the European Union. So when the European Union adopted the euro, it adopted a single currency. And this meant that all the old currencies went away and all those old differences between exchange rates between those very countries went away. 
And so this meant that instead of each country having its own printing press and its own central bank that set you know, the interest rate for its country, and this would reflect in its exchange rate with others, and it was able to print money on, on demand as needed, this was instead placed with a different government body, this idea of supranational, which is above the national and that you will cede some sovereignty to some other organization. And in the case of the European Union, that would be the European Central Bank or the ECB. Now, the ECB is somewhat like a normal central bank, uh, say in Australia. We have the Reserve Bank of Australia. It can print money as needed. It can lend. It is the lender of last resort in terms of if the banks need assistance, it can provide assistance to them and the government will back it up. However, it does mean you're giving up the ability to do a few things like print your own money. And so you've given up a lot of the tools in one half of your kind of policy you have in economics from the government perspective. The two of those are fiscal, and so that's your standard government, taxing and spending. Uh, what you hear a lot about from governments is that we're going to spend on these things, we're going to tax these people less or tax these people more. That's fiscal. The other side is monetary, and so that's the Reserve Bank of Australia, that's the central banks, that's the ECB. They set the interest rates, they can print money as needed, they have some flexibility to try and make lending more or less inviting, uh, which can affect your exchange rate because if you've got a high interest rate, other people might want to come into your country and invest because they can get a higher return. And that will increase the value of your currency because other people will be buying your currency to invest it in your country, so that will push it up. Uh, but also that will mean that it's more expensive for people in your country to maintain their debt. And so if you know, the classic thing is you hear about interest rates going up, that means your mortgage repayments will probably go up if you're in a variable rate. So it gives you ability to push and pull a little bit, you know, once a month, if you adjust them, you can have a, a small movement here and there to try and influence the economy and push it to be slow it down somewhat in the case of high interest rates, or try and speed it up by lowering the, the cost of debt. And so it's easy for people to take on debt and then invest it in some new enterprise to make money and grow the economy, or make it less attractive to foreign buyers. So they leave the country taking their money out decreasing the value of your dollar and making your exports cheaper so you can export more and you can make more money and grow. So that's the basics of monetary policy. And so you have fiscal and monetary policy and you can use them hopefully working together uh, and not working counter to each other's purposes to push the economy and guide it in the general direction so that when times are good, you pull back on the, on the throttle and when things are going not so well, you push forward in the throttle and you try and even out the business cycle and try and keep it you're steadily going upwards as opposed to having big gains and then sudden depressions. You want to try and keep it somewhat more even and stable. However, when you join the European Union and then you then join the Euro, you're giving up your ability to use the printing press and then you're giving up some of your monetary tools as you're then allowing others, and the ECB, the European Central Bank, to set the interest rate. But you have this problem where different countries within the European Union might want a high interest rate or a low interest rate at the same time because one might be having a very strong domestic economy, it's booming, it's actually overheating, it's you're starting to get asset bubbles starting as people just getting cheap debt and using it to buy assets. And you want to calm that down so you might want to put interest rates higher so to prevent that easy cheap lending and to kind of cool down the economy a bit so it doesn't over rev. But you might have another area where things are actually not going so well and they really would like some cheap debt, they would like low interest rates, they could help boost the economy and, and push it along. And so you have this problem where you have two different countries want two different things, then creates political impasses and political problems. But there's potentially a way around it. You can have you know one country 
uh, run a surplus and taken lots of tax to try and cool the, com- the country down by not letting people spend too much money. And that way it will you have an attempt to try and bring it down. And the other country could deficit spend with, the f- uh, with their fiscal policy and then be like, lots of government payouts. We're going to you know, invest in lots of infrastructure and that'll get the economy going despite you know, all things being held equal, the exchange rate being held th- the same. However, in the European Union, there are rules against certain deficit spending. And so that also constrains fiscal policy. And so you end up in a situation in the European Union where your economy is not really in your own control. There's only so much you can do. Um, and that means that if you run into a situation where you have a sudden spike or a sudden downturn, you can't actually deal with it properly because the European Union's uh, supranational body is only monetary side and not fiscal side. And so it can't say also if there's a problem between two nations to say, I'm going to take a whole bunch of money from you and give it to this other nation to make up for the fact that they've given up their printing press and they're now suffering for this. So there's a whole lot of tension between European countries about monetary policy and fiscal policy. And what's they're all, all trying to negotiate and gain an advantage and get things to shift within their own country's favor. However, there's also something especially important about having multiple countries in the same currency, and that's the yields on their bonds or kind of kind of like their credit rating almost. And so before the euro, Countries like Germany that were relatively strong and robust economies that were fairly stable and could be trusted would have relatively low yields on the bonds that their government issued. And this idea is that a government will issue a bond, you buy it, you give some money to the government, it uses it for some reason, so it wants to invest in infrastructure or pay for something, and then their economy will grow and then use the extra money from tax intake and the growth in the economy to pay you back. Generally, the higher the risk, the higher the yield. And so if you invest in Germany, maybe you're only getting 2 3 4%, 5%, relatively low yield. However, countries in the south end of Europe, so Portugal, Spain, Italy, Greece, they had much higher yields, you know, so much, maybe as high as 20% in some cases, which reflected the higher risk in those countries. Not so much that the economy was not going to continue to exist or anything like that, However, when those countries had their own printing press, there's the issue of inflation. The idea is that if they just print some money and then give it to you, you'll end up with less money than you expected you were going to get. And so there's a risk that you accepted when you took their bonds is that they were going to use inflation to potentially mean that the inflation ate away the debt. And so I'll give a quick explanation of inflation and how it can interact with uh, yields and interest rates and show how despite you having a high interest rate, if the inflation is even higher, it doesn't really matter. You're actually getting less money. So to explain inflation fairly basically, consider you have $100. And throughout the year, there's going to be an inflation rate of 5%, which means that if you want to have the same kind of value of what you can buy with things with your $100 today at the end of the year, you need to make sure that you have $105 by the end of the year. Otherwise, if you got less than that, then the kind of purchasing power of the 100 and whatever amount of money you have at the end of the year will be less than this $100. So you wanna make sure you have, if there's 5% inflation, you have $105 at the end of the year. Well, say I come to you and I say, I'm going to lend you $100. However, I want you to pay me back $103. So that's a 3% interest rate at the end of the year. You might think of this and say, well, 3% interest rate, after paying back $103, the inflation rate is $105, so, so really, at the end of the year, if you wanted to be 
at the same position he started with, he really needs to be charging me 5% interest because that way it will match inflation. He gets $105 back at the end of the year and that's the same as the inflation rate. And so he ends up with the same amount of money. So it means that if you have interest rate that's lower than your inflation, it means you're losing money and that the inflation is eating away the debt effectively. And countries have done this over time through printing money and inflation. You can reduce your debt through inflation. But it also means that even if the inflation isn't above the debt, even if it's high or makes up a fair proportion, so say the inflation rate's 5%, but I, understanding this, I go, oh, I'm going to offer you an interest rate of 6%. That way I'm getting more than the inflation. So true enough, I pay you $106 at the end of the year. That's more than $105. So you have gained a small amount of money out of the bargain. But you would have gained a lot more if the inflation rate was 2% or 1% or 0%. And so inflation eats away at the value of debt effectively. And so that's important to remember with these cases in the South. They had their own printing presses before the year came into being, and they could print their way to inflation and to pay off debt. And so there's a bit of a risk there. And so the yields are much higher. And this is very important when it comes to the banks, because part of the bank's lending profile is that they have some safe investments, some slightly more risky investments, and then some more risky, really risky investments, but relatively small in number, and that if they have high payoff, great, makes up for the loss of some of them as the risk hits. So if you're a bank in Europe, you might have some German debt, you buy some German bonds, they don't give you much, you know, 4%, 3%, 2%, it's not much, and if there's a little bit of inflation, you're getting even less, but Greece has got 20%. You wouldn't want to base your entire bank around 20% because there's risk, is being represented by that 20% yield of getting you know, putting $100 in and getting $120 back at the end of the year. It's a pretty good deal, but it's a bit risky. But you'll expose yourself a little bit to it. However, something changed when the euro came into being. All the printing presses were taken away. And so over time, you saw all the yields from Greece to Portugal to Spain to Germany all converge. And you can see there's a great graph you can look at there if you look at, uh, I think we say European bond yields last 20 years, last 30 years. And you see there's this big spread with really risky ones at you know, 20%, say like Greece, and you know, moderate ones in the middle and then down to say Germany down the bottom, very relatively low yields. And you see them converge and they come down to be almost identical. And so bankers looked at this and said, well, they can't print more money. So they can't use inflation to get things out of control. And, and there's no risk of that happening. And the ECB, the Central European Bank, is controlling monetary policy, and that's fairly stable, and we can trust them. Let's buy Greek debt. Let's do it. And as more people buy it, the demand goes up. Supply is still maybe the same relatively to the amount of demand for it. And so the yield drops as they don't need to offer 20% to get. They've got buyers coming in the doors. You don't have to offer 20%. People will buy it at 10%, and then 9%, and then 4%. And so you have this great increase in the amount of Greek debt. But that's a bit of a problem though, because you had predicated the structure of your bank on this idea that you have quite a bit of safe debt and then some more moderate debt and then a few bit of risky debt. But if you don't have any risky debt anymore, it's harder to make money because the yields have gone down. It's you're not getting that big profit of 20%. You're maybe getting 2%, 3%, 4%. So how do you make money on this kind of declining spread? You increase the leverage, you, you increase the amount of debt you take on to make up for it. So instead of having $1,000 bond for 10 years at 20%, maybe you buy 10 bonds for 10 years at 2%. And so you increase the amount on your books from $1,000 of debt to $10,000 of debt. 
And you can see very quickly how this would suddenly inflate the banking balances of the banks of Europe. And they just shoot up in size and they end up you know, 100%. This is the exact same size you know, of the entire German uh, yearly economy. And so you can see as the banks try to maintain their profits, they increase their debt, they increase their exposure to the market, and they end up making investment decisions that are quite risky when you think about the fundamentals of what Greece is as a country, and it's not that strong of an economy. And so that's on the bank side of things. Let's look at what's happening on the other side of things, down in Greece, for an example. Say there's more borrowing as a result of this, because suddenly the debt is really cheap. Instead of having to pay 20% to these banks, we have to pay 4% or 3%. So that means we suddenly have lots of money, which we can use to increase consumption and investment in our country. But that has some costs because suddenly we have this sudden influx of money, demand goes up, suddenly labor costs go up because people can demand to be paid for more. You suddenly become less competitively advantageous because your wages have gone up, but maybe Germany's hasn't. So they're even more competitive compared to you with their labor. So you can't export to make growth. You're relying on foreign capital to keep your economy going. And you end up importing more than you're exporting. And so you end up with a situation where you're taking German money into the country and then using it to buy German BMWs because the Germans are just so much more efficient at making the vehicles than you are because their labor costs have been held low by something called auto liberalism, this idea that the corporate, the government, and the wage and the workers all come together and decide how they're going to maintain competitive advantage to make sure they can keep exporting. So if you're unable to compete with the Germans, and let's be honest, few people can, you end up just buying from them, which helps stimulate their economy, and it's effectively German banks stimulating the German economy via Greece, but it does mean that you end up with the banks exposed more and more to the Greek economy, which underlyingly is not that strong. And as this money pumps it up, it makes it uncompetitive and in the long term makes it unsustainable. And so you see French and German banks overlending even more than the American banks that started this problem. But as we talked about earlier, there's a saving grace for the banks. If you realize that this is a problem and that you've overlent, there is a solution from your perspective. And that is, if you become so big that you become a danger to your national economy, you know you can rely on your government to bail you out. Even more so if you're a systemic risk and you're a threat to the entire economy of all of Europe. And so this is how you get to the too big to fail issue. And you might say, well, so what if Greece defaults? It's not that big of an economy. They can take a bit of a hit and move on. How there's a problem with this in that because the banks were so heavily leveraged and they didn't have much in the way of assets or money available, if the banks suddenly had a bad time, they would be caught out and they wouldn't have the money to cover their costs and their, their balance sheets would suddenly go from looking good to suddenly looking terrible very, very quickly. And so this is the reason why the global financial crisis migrated to the European Union. The Americans kicked things off, but that meant there was a lack of lending going on between banks and kind of this idea of dollar liquidity. And so if the dollars weren't flowing, then the European banks couldn't get the access to dollars they needed to maintain the functions of their banks. And so suddenly they were caught out and they were quite exposed to the American housing market. And when the value of those houses suddenly plummeted, they needed to sell something to cover the costs of those and to cover that sudden liability on their balance sheet. So what do you do? Well, you sell the, the bonds of Greek debt. Well, if you're selling the bonds of Greek debt and all your competitors are also selling the bonds of Greek debt, what happens to the price of Greek debt? There's no price that the market can find. No one's buying, everyone's selling, it plummets to zero. And so suddenly Greek debt, which wasn't that much of an issue, suddenly 
evaporates on your balance sheet as well. And say you've got an even bigger problem. Well, then you go to the next country. You might go to Portugal and try and sell Portugal. Everyone's doing the same thing. It plummets to zero. And once you get to Italy, Italy's too big to sell. You can't get rid of it and the bank implodes. So this gets us on to bailouts. And the idea that the European Union had to bail out the southern economy's banking sectors because there was a systemic risk and that if one of them fell, the others would fall right after. You know, Greece might go, then it's Ireland, then it's Portugal. Not so much that their economies would be failing, but it's referring to the debt that the banks held and that if they couldn't cover the initial losses in America in mortgages, they'd have to sell the debts of Greece. And if they couldn't cover their costs by doing that, they'd move on to the next country and next country. And each time they did so, they would be throwing these bonds into the market. No one wanted to buy them. There was no floor price for them. They plummet in value. They could suddenly have the new problem on their balance sheet of this all this debt that's now worth nothing because they can't sell it. And they move on to the next country and the next country, and it would just get out of control. The banks would not be able to cover it, and they would implode. So that was a brief explanation of how the global financial crisis made its way to Europe and how it had this really interesting and particular effect because of the introduction of the euro and how the system was built and the increased debt that occurred because of the changing in yields and bonds, among other things. Next week, we'll be talking about the bailout of national governments in Europe and the politics of austerity. That's it for this week's podcast. I've been your host, Nathan Shaw. As always, you can find our website at envoyfpa.org. You can find us at our Facebook and Instagram pages. And as always, if you have any comments, questions, or requests, you can send them to our email at envoyuwa@gmail.com. We'll be back next week with a part two of this special episode series.